and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I'm Jeff Bowdern, and it's a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down that road of wrestling history. And now, the man of the hour, the man himself, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Ron, how are you today? I'm great, Jeff. Doing absolutely fine, man. And uh, so glad to be here. And I appreciate to have the opportunity to talk a little wrestling history with fans out there. It's sure a pleasure to be with you here, Ron. Uh, Ron, I tell you what, before we start the show, since I, like a lot of people out there, are avid listeners of the show, I have a question before we start about last week's show, if you don't mind. Okay. Last week, you were talking about bringing in Andre, and you had the two-ring battle royals. So my question to you is, as a promoter, does the idea of the two-ring battle royal, and of course, you have the attraction of Andre coming in, how does that affect the potential loss of having that extra ring, which might take away ringside seats that you could sell to potential customers? Well, that's a darn good question. I mean, if you're in a small arena, two-ring battle royals are are very difficult to be able to put in there and have your normal ringside setup. Uh, this event is in the Coliseum, obviously. So that's going to make it a lot easier for me to be able to do it and not have to change the configuration of the ringside seats. And uh, first time Andre was there, back in April of 1975, uh, we were in the Coliseum as well. So, you know... I try not to do these two-bearing battle royals in a smaller venue. Sometimes we have on some occasions, but it's it's a big-time event. And, uh, you know, you've got that Coliseum floor. It's similar to Mid-South Arena, Mid-South uh, in uh, Memphis. It's got that big Coliseum uh, setup in which they've got plenty of room on the floor for all your ringsiders and for putting two rings side by side. But, yeah, it's a great question. It would take away some ringside seats if you're in a small arena, but if you're in a big coliseum, you don't sacrifice anything on your ringside. Okay, so Ron, where are we going today? Well, we're going to talk about where the four shows were in Southeastern this week uh, and this timetable that we're in now. November 17th, 1975, we're going to run three other cities besides Knoxville. We're still not a bona fide territory with six nights a week, but we are growing and getting there. And we're also going to include an in-depth look at the last three straight Coliseum shows, uh, and especially the one on September or November 21st. Uh, I'm going to announce the entire card for the Coliseum show, as I do 
every week. This is for the November 21st show. And uh, it will also have the TV that promoted the card, the results of the card, the gross house, and the payoffs uh, for the entire four shows uh, for some of the guys that were on all, so all four of those. And uh, provided I have enough time, I'll cover the last Knoxville event on Friday, November 28th on Christmas night, uh, the last event before Christmas night. So I'm going to jump right in it, Jeff, if it's okay. This is the second time the Southeastern Wrestling ran four cities in one week. On Tuesday, November 18th, 1975, Johnson City, Tennessee ran in the Tri-Cities area. It drew about 1,200 people. Thursday in Middlesbrough, Kentucky drew 1,400. Saturday, November 22nd in Marstown, Tennessee drew 1,300. Total number of fans in these three cities in the third week of November 75 was about 4,000 fans. It was an average ticket price of $3 a person for the 4,000 fans. That was a combined gross of $12,000 and a total payroll of about $3,600. There were 12 wrestlers on these three shows then one referee. Each of those cards had an average payoff, $95 for each guy. Uh, the bottom guys, bottom seven guys got 75 each, and the top six guys got 115 each. So there was a... The total for the three guys, the uh, bottom guys, was $225. And the total for the top guys was $345 for those three shows. Of those three shows, two of them, Johnson City and Morristown, began their own three-show tournaments. It'll be three consecutive weeks that they'll have tournaments there for beautiful trophies. The winners will be representing the Johnson City champion or the Morristown champion, depending on where they win it. And uh, they will be defending those championships and those trophies in the weeks after the tournaments are done. These tournaments will finish all before Christmas night. And the city's champion would defend the trophy on a regular basis after Christmas. Both these cities had, had the following card. Tennessee Tag Championship matches. Ron Wright and Robert Fuller versus Butch Malone and Superstar. And uh, plus three tournament matches. Now let's introduce the entire card for the third straight Coliseum event on November 21st, 1975, with nine matches in all on that card. Superstar number one and Bobby Fields wrestled against Buddy Wayne and Don Lambrick. Bobby Fields in his first match was one of the three Fields brothers that were all members of the Welch family. From my grandfather's generation, you know, a couple of generations back, and one of the three Fields brothers that I would purchase the Gulf Coast Wrestling Company from three years later. Big Butch Malone made his Southeastern debut versus Dennis Hall. Robert Fuller took on Novell Austin. In a special challenge match, Tony Siegler wrestled Don Carson. And the next match on that card was a $500 challenge match between Robert and Don Carson specifically. The first one took place on the first Coliseum show when Robert collected 500 from Carson. Carson made a challenge that if he couldn't beat Robert in five minutes, he would give him $500, and Carson lost his money. This time, Robert's putting up the $500 that he can beat Carson in five minutes. He'll give Carson $500 if he can. Bob Armstrong returns on this show, but this time to defend his Southern Heavyweight Championship, not against Tommy Siegler, but Les Thatcher. I was facing Rock Hunter in a Brass Knucks rules match. Ron Wright had won the Brass Knucks Championship from Hunter the week before, and the main event on this night is the NWA World Heavyweight Championship, Jack Briscoe 
versus Ron Wright. Ron, if I could ask you a quick question about the NWA champ, Jack Briscoe, one of the, the heroes of my youth, uh, if you will. I'm curious, as the world champion working for you as a promoter, how did you find that Jack drew strictly as a world champion as compared to, say, a Harley Race or later a Terry Funk or Ric Flair? Well, you know, Jack was a unique heavyweight champion. He's one of the few I remember who was a babyface almost all his career. So Jack is, you can't really put him in the, in the same position as the other guys because he's not been a heel before he becomes champion. You want to put your baby face against the world champion because that obviously is going to draw more money. World champions come in, the fans want to see that baby face win the world championship. So, uh, you know, having Jack in there, it made it more difficult because uh, Jack was a clean wrestler. He really did not heal like other world champions did. He was not Harley. He was not Terry Funk. He was not Ric Flair. He didn't go out there as a heel. He went out there as a baby face. And at times he did, he did uh, get a little bit into the heel side of it, but he never let it get too far. And uh, so it made a little bit of difference. Although Jack did very well for me as world champion, he had wrestled for me one time already. This is his second time in Knoxville as world champion. And both of those crowd were over 4,000. That's pretty good for a building in which wrestling had never been run. I think Jack was on maybe the first Coliseum show in the history of Southeastern wrestling. So, uh, you know, we weren't big back in those days. We were trying to build a territory and Knoxville was not a big town at this point. It's not like Memphis. It's not drawing 10 or 11,000. It's never been drawing that kind of people. But we're going to push it in that direction. And we're just in the infancy of getting that done. So before we get to the results of this tremendous card on the, on the 21st of November, let's take a look at the television show on the Saturday before, November 15th, the one that's promoted this specific card for the Coliseum. Show started out with a bang, immediately following the regular opening with, of the Southeastern logo in action, the opening we had every week. The first face seen on the program was the president of the National Wrestling Alliance, Sam Muchnick, doing a very rare interview about the results of the NWA's ruling on the recent hair versus mask match between myself and the assassin. He talked about my obviously winning the match and the assassin's refusal to remove his mask at that point. He said that the rest of the video clearly showed a second assassin coming to the ring, taking the place of the real assassin, and then being unmasked instead of the real assassin. He said the NWA demanded that every wrestler fulfill his contract, especially matches with specific stipulations as this one had, mask against hair. This type of illegal tactic, he said, would not be allowed in the National Wrestling Alliance. He said that the NWA had decided to give the most severe punishment ever in this match. He said the assassin was barred immediately and indefinitely from Southeastern Wrestling. Well, the studio crowd heard of this. That's the first thing they see, and there was a big pop. You know, uh, they didn't know who Sam Muchik was until Les Thatcher starts talking about what they just saw, and he, he recognizes... Uh, is Sam Muchnick, obviously. So what better way to open up a, a television show than with the most prestigious representative of the largest wrestling alliance in the world? This show would begin with the president of the NWA 
It's going to include an interview with the current NWA champion, Jack Briscoe. It's going to air during November ratings period. And uh, it's also going to give fans another look at another commentator they've never seen, Gordon Soley from Florida. It's got pretty much everything in this show. I was definitely hoping that the GM of my new television station in Knoxville, WBIR, was watching this program because he was going to love this because they, these are some really, really prestigious people to have on your show. Again, to enhance the ratings, the TV show the prior week plugged that Siegler would be putting his Southeastern television trophy on the line on this program. So the first match on TV that day, the Saturday before the World Championship night in the Coliseum was the Southeastern TV Championship with Tommy Siegler, the champion, defending against a guy who'd only been there about two weeks, Don Carson. Siegler was finishing up at the end of the next Saturday, and I had to get the TV championship off of him, and I had to get someone over in the process. Carson was really getting hot fast. I could see he was the guy to give the big push to. What better way than putting the Southeastern Championship on him would there be to kid him over? And so it was a great and it was a meaningful match for the November ratings. Carson was introduced first by announcer Phil Rainey to a thunderous roar of boos. He's already getting a lot of heat. When Tommy Siegler came into view of the studio audience with his beautiful television trophy, fans went crazy. This was truly a main event on TV. They went almost a complete 20 minutes, which was the standard time limit for all television championship matches. Tommy worked over Carson's glove hand that he wore and every match, and uh, and several times during the match, he stomped his hand. He did just about everything he could to Carson's hand, and Carson kept shaking it, rubbing it, and grimacing in pain, like it was really bothering him, and Carson, for the first time ever, had to load his glove to beat Tommy Siegler. He hadn't loaded it since he'd been there, but this time he loads it on TV, and people see what he can actually do. And the way that happened is Siegler's pretty much taken the match to him, Got him in the corner. Referee pushed Siegler back. Carson, while the referee's back is turned, loaded and adjusted his glove. People saw that. They didn't know exactly what he was doing because he'd never hit anybody with it. When Siegler pushed the referee out of the way and charged in there, Carson hit him with one punch, knocked him cold. They counted him out, and they not only counted him out, they carried him out. So the fans that wouldn't stop booing as Carson left the ring with the new TV trophy they were really, really upset by that. And then on his way to the set, Norvell Austin joined him with a bunch of high fives, and they were really enjoying the big victory. Fans really got involved at that point, too, with louder boos. Norvell had been there for a couple of months, and Norvell has some heat at this point. Norvell goes to the set with Carson, and Les waited until both of those guys were at the set for, before he called for the instant replay. We were doing instant replay long before any other territories were doing it. And uh, Carson then asked Les why he waited to run the instant replay until they got to the desk. And Nord Boyle chimed in pretty nicely. Uh, yeah, Les Thatcher, if people don't want to see an instant replay. It'll just make Siegler look weak like he really is. You know, he was knocking Siegler big time. But Les, you know, he was in charge of the program and he called for the replay. Carson called to have him stop it, told the director, stop that replay. Les just said, no, keep running it. And uh, so then Les described what he saw on the replay. Carson doing something with the glove, 
And Carson didn't like the idea that you showed that again. You didn't need to show that. And uh, you could see the dislike uh, of Les on Carson's face after the replay finish. Les immediately asked for the director to run the video from the night before at the end of the two-ring battle royal where the tag match was in progress. There was a 7,000 prize to be split between the two winners in this tag match. Carson and Norvell were on one team. Robert and Andre the Giant were on the second. Rob got busted open in the match. He's bleeding. Carson and uh, and Austin had, had him beat on several different occasions. And Rob barely bragged, was able to kick out, and he finally tags in Andre. Andre comes in, and the roof comes off that Coliseum. Andre makes the big comeback, left both heels laying. He finished by taking Rob and putting him on top of both of them, and the ref counted him out. Carson went nuts at this point. He's watching the video, saying, can you imagine a soft, young, weak punk like that walking away with $3,500 in his pocket? That was our money, Norvell, he says to Norvell and throws his arm around Norvell's shoulder. They haven't been buddies at all. All of a sudden, they are becoming friends. Then Carson began again. I've got a match with Tommy Siegler next Friday, and that punk Robert Fuller has one with you, Norvell. Carson then challenged Robert next Friday to come back to the ring after both of them finished their earlier match, and he would give Robert another 500 if he couldn't beat him in five minutes. And, uh, you know, Norvell promised Carson that he would hurt Rob so bad in their match the next Friday that Carson would win in less than two minutes. Actually, Rob was the man that challenged Carson at this point. Carson wanted to act like, well, I'm going to put up $500 more. But uh, Rob went ahead and boot and put this 500 up for this particular match the next week. Robert's on the first interview with Les. Les started to ask Rob questions about the challenge Carson had made a few minutes earlier. But Rob said he'd already heard it. He, he told him he was going to put up 500 and that he had plenty of confidence he could beat Carson in five minutes. It, it really put Austin's ability over because he had to wrestle Austin first. But uh, then he finally finished with a few words to Carson. He, he, uh, he made the challenge once again. This would be my 500. And if you can beat me, I'll give you $500, Carson. And uh, the crowd roared as Rob left the set. Uh, the second match was a newcomer, Southeastern Wrestling, and me as well, Big Butch Malone. And he had been recommended to me by one of the greats, Cowboy Bill Watts. I had a lot of respect for Watts. And if he ever recommended talent to me, I never turned it down. I contacted an unknown wrestler, and I'm talking about then Big Butch Malone, and was looking forward to seeing him for the very first time. I was impressed with his size. He was about 6'4", about 275. He had speed for a big man, and he had some wrestling ability, which I always looked for. He was facing Tommy Rich in this particular television match, who was already a fan favorite there. They had a great TV match. All the studio fans expected Rich to win, but there was absolute silence from the studio crowd when Butch Malone piledrived Tommy Rich and the ref counted him out. And that's that to me is exactly, I love to surprise fans. I wanted to give them something they never expected to see. I'm sure they saw Tommy Rich. They saw a new guy cross the ring from him on TV. Well, this is a job boy. He's going to beat. He's going to get beat big time. And then he ends up beating Tommy Rich in the middle of the ring. So it was during this match that I finalized my idea of teaming up Butch Malone with Norvell Lawson. And that was especially because I had a new manager coming the following week, General Homer Odell, 
arriving the next Friday night. Uh, I needed a good team, and I decided this is going to be my team for Homer Odell. At this point, with Assassin gone and with Hunter leaving the next week, I had very few heels of significance in the changing crew. I'm changing crew like a lot of territories did at the end of the year. Guys that's been there is leaving. New guys are going to be coming in. This team's going to be my primary tag team until March of 1976. After the commercial break, Phil Rainey took over the set for the two-minute interview slot. He opened with an interview for the Southern Heavyweight Champion, Bob Armstrong. And that was sent by Jerry Jarrett out of Memphis. He had recorded over there. Bob was working for him full-time. And uh, Bob had only been there twice before. He had beat Tommy Siegler in the middle once and had a time limit draw in the other match. He was against less stature this time, and it was starting to get over as a sneaky type of little heel. That's what he was at this point, who acted like a babyface. People wondered, like Bob Armstrong, they always did. But uh, he could be a tremendous heel when he wanted to be. After Bob's great interview, as his interviews always were, Rainey threw the remaining part of the interview to Armstrong's opponent, Les Thatcher, in Studio 3. Les was very humble about getting a shot at a major title and a major opponent. He was also concerned about who Bob Armstrong really was now since becoming Southern Champion. He guessed it would be next Friday until he would find that fact out. Then, as always, in the middle of a Southeastern wrestling show, everyone was the personality profile, five-minute segment that tried not to be totally for advertising events. Uh, this one's going to be a little bit different because of who is involved in the matches the following Friday night. That's another piece of video. It starts out in this personality profile with from Florida, from the Florida Territory. And Les is on the set by himself, and after a brief explanation of the profile for the day, he threw it to the great Gordon Soley in Florida. Gordon introduced a segment shot in Florida shortly after Briscoe won the world title. They discussed how difficult it was to win the NWA title and how every challenger had a different style. It was similar to our personality profile, and it fit into exactly what we like to do on Southeastern. After the segment finished, there was a smooth cut to Gordon, and Jack talked about the upcoming match with the legendary East Tennessee brawler, Ron Wright. Fans in the studio were extremely involved in these videos and reacted as if both Gordon and Jack were live right there in the studio. Uh, it was great. The, you know, you got that crowd reaction over top of a video and an interview. It was really good. It was a great personality profile. And I felt like it was sure to draw money the following Friday. Third match was Robert Fuller versus Don Lambert. Lambert jumped in before the bell rang and built some heat. Rob had been cut the night before, but the wound wasn't open. When Rob started to make his comeback, Lambert raked his hand across Rob's eyes, uh, then drew the ref's attention as Carson came out, loaded his glove again for the second time in the show, hit Robert over the eye where the cut was from the night before, and disappeared before the ref saw him. Cut began to bleed badly, and the crowd was going nuts as it appeared Lambert was going to beat Robert. Again, Robert made another comeback, and this time put the fuller leg lock on Lambert. He gave up immediately. I went out to the ring, I got Robert, and we came back to the set together. I took a towel with me, and I gave it to Robert. Les introduced the video from the night before of the tag match, before the Battle Royal, 
in which Robert and I battled Norvell and Hunter in a singles match before the Battle Royal ever started. My head was also bandaged because Hunter had opened me up on the night before with some brass nugs in that tag match before the Battle Royal started. So after we watched the video, I reminded all the fans that last night Hunter had sneaked his nucks into the ring again, but the following Friday night, I would have a pair of brass nucks on myself because it was going to be a brass nucks match. I admitted I bled the night before because of Hunter, but I wouldn't be the only one bleeding next Friday night against him. The assassin was gone for good. That happened earlier in the show. Sam Mutchik sent him on his way, and Hunter would be gone as well. The fans loved it, obviously. Robert had managed to wipe the blood from his face by this point. He hadn't had anything to say. I knew the cut on his head wasn't going to stop bleeding before the end of the interview, and I left him the last 30 seconds to have his say on purpose. And I had also talked earlier to the director of show about getting a close-up shot of Robert's cut while he was doing that last 30 seconds of that interview. When he began the interview, there was no blood on his face at all. By the first 10 seconds of his interview, there was a stream of blood coming out of his head and running off his nose. What he had to say was not nearly as important as what fans were seeing on their screens at home. Anyone who had ever said that blood on wrestling, on wrestling shows or at wrestling matches was all fake was going to have to take it back. In that 30 seconds that he talked, everyone in that studio and all those people at home watched the blood come out of a wound that had been dried off, there was no blood there, run down his forehead, off his nose, and off his chin to the desk below. As the saying goes, a picture was truly worth a thousand words. When you got away from what the other promoter was doing and you decided you wanted to integrate it, make it more uh, like NWA wrestling was, you know, maybe in Florida, how did you decide when and where blood was appropriate? Well, I didn't like a lot of it, to be honest with you. Uh, uh, it was customary there in Knoxville before I came there. Uh, Ron Wright uh, had been there for many, many years. He had the old chisel that uh, I'm sure you, you've you heard of. Uh, you know, so uh, it, was a, it was nothing like Florida, and I wanted to get uh, more like Florida in that area. I wanted to have more wrestling and less blood. I had cut back on it a little bit, but I found out in these Coliseum events, I wanted to do something to put more people in that big building. And uh, I, I felt like I needed to. I tried to keep a handle on how much blood there was going to be. And uh, and it certainly, I knew I didn't have any problem of giving them less than what they'd had before. Because I knew they'd had a tremendous amount of blood prior to my arrival there. And my trying to change things from uh, just blood and fighting to some wrestling. Uh, because that's what the marquee says is wrestling. And that's what I wanted to do. So in the fourth match here, uh, featured the number one hillbilly Ron Wright versus Buddy Wayne. Uh, Ron Wright's got a world championship match coming. Ron Wright is a baby face at this time. He is not a heel. Ron did an amazing amount of wrestling for me that, that match. I'd never seen him do that much wrestling before. He won the match using one of those old-style finishes never seen in today's wrestling matches anymore. It's a move that's totally been lost called the abdominal stretch. 
He did the very difficult move with grace and style. I was amazed that Ron Wright could do an abdominal stretch that well. It was perfect for selling tickets to an NWA World Championship match. He was going to be in the ring with one of the indisputably best wrestlers of all time, Jack Briscoe. I'm sure the fans were not expecting Ron Wright to try and out-wrestle Jack Briscoe. Ron had been in the East Tennessee spotlight for many years and deserved this shot. Fans loved him as a babyface, and when he was a heel, they had to love, they'd love to hate him, even as a heel. He was a rare and unique talent. After his win on TV, he went to the set. When the commercial break ended, he did the last interview of the show. His interview was a bit different than usual. He talked about his long career and the different world champions he had wrestled. He talked about his skills as a brawler and how his pure wrestling skills didn't, didn't, didn't fit with his brawling skills, but uh, he was going to do his best. And that, that's different skills made him very difficult opponent for any world champion. He's right about that. A guy that's a brawler and a wrestler, pretty difficult to deal with when you're a champion and you don't want to lose your title. Uh, he promised to start by just wrestling and doing his best against maybe the best of all time. He hoped that fans didn't mind if just wrestling wasn't going to be enough to win, that he was then going to bring back the old Ron Wright and do whatever he had to do to walk away with that 10 pounds of gold. The fans went crazy over the interview with it, and uh, they were getting a glimpse of the old Ron Wright, and they dearly loved it. So I thought this was probably the best Southeastern TV show so far. Lots of angles, issues, new talent and old, president of the NWA, the world champion of the NWA, a very famous commentator, never seen, Gordon Soley. It just about had a little bit of everything in it. We had done all we could do, and I look forward to seeing the crowd the next Friday night. All right, Ron, I think this is a good place for a break. Fans keep raving about the incredible Super Studcast number 23 with Dr. Tom Pritchard at TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast. It's like a Southern wrestling history book that takes only three hours to read. Dr. Tom is knowledgeable far beyond his years and, as with most Super Studcasts, relates easily to the stud. This is what makes these unique Super Studcasts so incredible. At TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast. Only $2.99 for wrestling's best deal. And fans, don't forget to shop at the Stud Store for your Christmas gifts. The tremendous Lost Territory Continental Wrestling DVD 5-Pack is back for only $39.99, including shipping. Five DVDs and over 12 hours of classic matches never before available. Order by December 15th and get your 5-Pack before Christmas. Plus Studcast t-shirts, numerous photographs, and much more at TNStud.com. Click Stud Store and fill your cart. Nobody provides more podcast monthly than the Tennessee Stud and the next Super Studcast will be released on Tuesday, December 17th. Thanks for everyone's support and Merry Christmas from all of us here at Studcast Central. Thanks, Dave Summers, for the information about the fantastic Super Studcast number 23 with the extremely knowledgeable Dr. Tom Pritchard. This Super Studcast covers so much it's incredible. From Dr. Tom's beginnings of his illustrious career, Houston promoter, the legendary Paul Bosch, the dirty white boys hanging of Tom in a continental wrestling angle that turned out to be almost too real, his famous brother, Bruce Pritchard of Dr. Love and WWE fame, training Vince McMahon Jr., The Rock, and many others, how to work, and much more at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. 
Another record number of patrons have listened to this episode of Wrestling History over three hours for only $2.99, the best deal in wrestling. Ron, where are we going to now? Well, we've talked about the card and the TV promoting it. Now let's break down the results and how this great NWA world title card ended up. In the first match of the night, the newcomer, Big Butch Malone, got his second victory in Southeastern Wrestling against Dennis Hall. I was uh, impressed again with the heat Malone got in that match and was sure he was the guy to partner with Norvell Austin and the two of them being managed by General Homer Odell. All three of them beat together the next Friday night. Second match was superstar number one and my Welch cousin, Bobby Fields, wrestling Buddy Wayne and Don Lambert. There was a problem in this match, and the winning team got into an argument that turned into a fight after the superstar, a babyface up to this point, stomped his own partner, Bobby Fields, in the back of the head when Bobby was attempting to pin Buddy Wayne for the win. The superstar then threw his own partner over the top rope and covered Wayne, and he got the win instead. So the referee counted the heel team out, raised the superstar's hand, and as Fields re-entered the ring, he raised Fields' hand. The ref then went to Fields. After he raised his hand, uh, Fields went directly to the superstar. He got right in his face. And uh, the superstar acted as though he was going to apologize, and he offered to shake Fields' hands. Uh, Fields was wary, but he finally accepted the handshake. And when he turned to leave the ring, the superstar attacked him a second time from behind. This time, he threw him over the top rope again and went outside on the floor to finish the job. He pulled Fields up off the concrete and ran him head first in the steel ring post. But Fields began to bleed. I mean, you don't hit the steel ring post without having some blood. And, uh, and uh, the superstar shot back up in the ring again. Well, the crowd just kind of sit there. They, they don't know really what's going on here. Okay, they're stunned and kind of silent. Superstar got back in the ring and set Fields up for a pile driver, drug him in and got in there with him and was going to pile drive him. And, and Bobby Fields backdropped the superstar before he could pile drive him. The crowd popped on that. Finally, they decided who they're going to pick between these two. Fields was obviously the baby face at that point. Fields started to kick the superstar around the ring, and the crowd loved it. Superstar ran to the dressing room, and a bloody Bobby Fields got a huge ovation from the Coliseum crowd. Fields then asked for the microphone, challenged the superstar to a one-on-one the following Friday night. The crowd's applause answered his challenge. That would be the first match on the following Friday night. Something's going to happen in that match the following night. There's going to be another surprise as far as these two guys are concerned. Third match was Tommy Siegler against the man who had taken his TV trophy the Saturday before, Don Carson. Carson was very strong in this match. It was to be the last ever for Tommy Siegler in Southeastern wrestling. He won without the use of his glove as the crowd booed him at the end as if he were already the top heel in the young territory. Robert Fuller versus Norvell Lawson was next on a 20-minute time limit match. They had a great match with the crowd on their feet for the last five minutes. When the time limit ran out, the bell rang. The referee raised both their hands to signify a draw match. Robert started to leave the ring to catch his breath before that second match that he was going to have to have to come back against Don Carson. But Norvell Pearl harbored him from behind and uh, threw him over the top rope, and Don Carson come running down to the ring, loaded up his glove, and he pops Rob again. Uh, Nobel jumps on the floor, 
uh, holds Rob there, and uh, Carson gets a really good shot at him. So Carson opens up Rob's head. Uh, you know, he's already been bleeding. He had bled the Friday before, the Saturday. Now he's bleeding again. Uh, so he grabbed the microphone. Ref came down from the ring, you know, to, got down to help Rob. You know, he's going to help him back to the dressing room, give him a few minutes to catch his breath before they have this $500 challenge match. But Carson jumps up in the ring and he grabs the microphone and he demands that they start the $500 challenge match right then. Uh, during Carson's demand, Norvell Austin crawled under the ring on the opposite side of the ring from where Robert and the referee were. Uh, the only people who knew Norvell was under there, obviously, were the crowd. And uh, so the ref tried to take Rob back, uh, but when Rob hears the challenge from Carson, he's mad. He goes right back to the ring. When he enters the ring, ref calls for the bell, and the fight was was on long before Phil Rainey ever finished announcing the $500 challenge match where Rob had put up the money against Carson, being able to beat him in less than five minutes. The announcer kept counting off the minutes from five down to one as the crowd got more excited with every minute gone and Robert kicking Carson's butt. In the last minute, Robert tried to beat Carson with a pin, even though he didn't need to pin him to win. He only had to go five minutes without Carson beating him. Carson kicked out, and when Robert took a headlock to try and run the timeout, Carson maneuvered Robert toward the ref and sent him flying into the ref, and down went Robert and the ref with about 30 seconds left. They were calling down the time. It's only a five-minute deal. Carson slumped himself in the corner. He's been beat pretty badly at this point. Austin then comes out from under the ring, rolls into the ring, pile drives Robert, drag Carson over to the covers, puts him on top of Rob, and then drags the ref over to where the ref is laying by him when the ref kind of gets his senses about him. And uh, when he did, he counts him out, <laughs> you know. Uh, then uh, Austin runs down, to, runs down the back of ringside and tries to hide so that the uh, ref doesn't have any idea he had anything to do what happened after the Rob and him had collided. As the announcer called out the last 10 seconds, as I said, ref counted him out, and Norvell ran back in the back, and uh, then uh, he grabbed the 500 in cash. Here comes Norvell back again. Carson's still kind of half-selling. He's not, he's not uh, got his faculties about it yet. And uh, Norvell comes up, gets the 500 in cash from the announcer, and he helps Carson all the way back to the dressing room. The crowd's going nuts. I'd never heard them in any Coliseum event so far sound like that. It only proved to me that Carson and Norvell had more heat in a few weeks than the assassin and rock hunter had gotten in months. It also proved to me that the Coliseum acoustics were much better than at the Chilhowee Park, and I couldn't wait to find out what it was going to sound like someday when we filled that big, beautiful building. Sixth match was the Southern Heavyweight Championship Bob Armstrong versus Les Thatcher. I didn't know what to expect from this match when I booked it. Two baby faces again, but I was sure happy with, with it after I saw what happened. Les had not been working full time since he started the Southeastern Wrestling TV show, but he certainly didn't hurt his ability in the ring. They had another great match on this super card. Bob Armstrong again insisted on a 30-minute time limit as he'd done the week before with Tommy Siegler. On their second match in the Coliseum, fans booed him as soon as he demanded it. 
think they were kind of expecting he was going to try to cut it from an hour to 30 minutes. The stage was set at that point for this match. They worked a purely scientific wrestling match for the first 20 minutes, and then Bob began to drift toward being a heel. Uh, Les fought back, and the crowd really got behind him. I think he had become more popular as the commentator for Southeastern than he was as just a wrestler. Again in this match, with several of the others, the last five minutes was outstanding. It would be quite a while before Bob Armstrong would appear in Southeastern again. I could not afford to make him the kind of money he was used to. He was a talent of my dreams at that point. Uh, He was so good, and, uh, you know, you had to pay guys like that to be able to get him. But when he does return to Southeastern in the future, he'll no longer be we will no longer be in our infancy at Southeastern. We will have become a bona fide big-time territory. He's going to fall in love with Knoxville, the boys that work there, uh, the way the territory is run, the fun in the, in the dressing room, the short trips, the big money, and he's going to begin an extremely close relationship with me. So close that he'll only work a couple of other territories for short periods of time uh, for the rest of his career. He's going to be uh, really solid with me from then on. Okay, so Ron, I have a quick question here. Uh, got a lot of questions, but the first one I want to ask regarding Don Carson. So Don Carson, you bring him in with the expectation that he's going to be your new uh, primary heel. As you look back in retrospect, what was Don Carson's chief strength was it his in-ring work was it his promos what was it that made fans want to come to the arena to see don carson get his well you know i started my first match ever with don carson i was in the ring with don carson and dick dunn in arkansas in a match in arkansas and my first experience with carson was just phenomenal Uh, my granddad was there my grandmother my great-grandmother were there and my grandmother and my great-grandmother almost got arrested because Carson was taking really good care of me, and uh, and uh, I was selling for him really good. So I knew Carson had the ability to get heat. I'd also been in three months with him in Australia. I knew that he was a big-time heel. He was not only a good talent in the ring, he was a great interviewer. And I felt like the glove that he wanted to use. I liked the idea of it. Uh, it was there because he always interviewed and said, well, I got my hand crushed and my knuckles are in in bad shape, and I can't wrestle without it. And it got a lot of heat. So, yeah, he I knew he was going to be good for me and draw me money. Uh, In fact, he did better than I even anticipated he would. Uh, We're talking about late 1975. By the middle of summer uh, 1976, six months later, basically, uh, we're going to sell out the outside amphitheater 5,000 plus people. Uh, so, you know, he's, he, he's going to get real heat there and he's going to f- do a phenomenal job for me. I felt like he could, and he really loved it there too. A lot of guys came there not expecting to stay very long, uh, didn't know what to expect that fell in love with that part of the country. And once we started drawing money, guys didn't want to leave. They just wanted to come there and stay. And, uh, so yeah, Good question, though. Don Carson was a rare talent. He's in his youth at this point. He's not an older guy, uh, but he's very experienced. He knows how to get heat, and I know how to help him get it. And so 
It was a good combination, and we're going to do big business with Don Carson. Okay, my next question, if you don't mind, uh, regarding the uh, Bob Armstrong-Les Thatcher match. You talked about the first 20 minutes of the match being primarily scientific uh, with no, you know, like subtle heel tactics. I'm curious, when you had a promotion like the promoter that, uh, you know, preceded you, that did a lot of brawling, and, you know, now you're basically trying to re-educate the, the fans in that area, how did they react when they see 20 minutes of scientific wrestling? Well... I had already been re-educating him for a year. I had been there at this point for 13 months, and and I specifically put uh, tried to put a wrestling match, a very uh, clean wrestling match, on uh, at least once every other week. And uh, you know when I when I did that, it was all uh, because I wanted them to get to appreciate it. I tried to do it, and I was really lucky in my first year there. I had guys like uh, Danny Hodge and Dale Lewis and heels that were wrestlers. Sure. I guess what I meant, and I, maybe I didn't phrase it correctly, is by this point, when they're seeing 20 minutes of scientific wrestling uh, in one of the upper card matches, are they accepting it? Or are they still, you know, is there still that part of them that wants more brawling? Uh, they were accepting it. They were enjoying it. I mean, I watched the match. I watched all of those matches because I want, I, you can't hardly do it, be a, good booker if you don't see the matches. So, uh, yeah, they, the fans enjoyed it. I mean, obviously they want to see more, they're expecting more. And, uh, I felt like, uh, you know, Bob Armstrong was such a great talent. He could kind of get a feel for it. He could tell when they reached a point to where, you know, I need to do something here. I need to open it up a little bit and, uh, let's see if we can uh, get it, take them up another notch. And uh, that's kind of what the way it happened. I think he took, he knew he's had 30 minutes. He took 20 of it. They exchanged holes. They did some real nice switches. They did some beautiful wrestling in there. And I don't, uh, if you don't push that down people's throats, uh, you have a hard time building it. And uh, that's kind of what I did. I, I really tried to do that. I'd already wrestled Jack Briscoe in his first world championship shot in the first Coliseum show. And we'd probably did uh, 30 minutes of wrestling, pretty much strict wrestling. And so, uh, you know, fans were getting used to it. Uh, and, you know, a guy like Bob, he's got the concept. He knows what I want. And uh, we sit and talk about it. He's, he knows he knows what the, what I need and how to give it to me. And he went out there and did a fantastic job of it. Okay, so now the seventh match involves you. Yes, that's that Brass Nooks match that Rock, Rock Hunter and I are going to have. Uh, I've had all these problems with Hunter and the assassin. Sam Mutchnick got rid of the assassin. Uh, Rock Hunter is the only one left, basically. And uh, so I'd end up bleeding in the Brass Nucks match from the week before. Actually, it wasn't a Brass Nucks match. It was a tag match, and he pulled the Brass Nucks out and hit me with them during the tag match. But uh, this time, uh, he's going to do a great job for me. He's leaving, too, in two weeks. So he does the bleeding, and then uh, and he also ends up getting beat. He has only one more week, like I said, before his notice is finished, and he's all business about it. I, I was really impressed about Rock Hunter, about losing on his way out, didn't have a problem with it, and getting someone over. Like I said, I couldn't have been more happy with the way both he and the assassin finished for me. Uh, at the same time, I had to admit that carried me through my first and most difficult summer and fall as a young booker and an owner of a territory. They always had my utmost respect, those guys. 
The assassin is going to return for me in continental wrestling as the aflame and be a valuable star in my stud stable 10 years later. While down the road, but, uh, you know, did a tremendous job for me for quite a bit of time in 1975, and uh, so did Rock Hunter. I really appreciate those guys and how hard they worked for me. The main event that night is the NWA World Heavyweight Championship, Jack Briscoe and Ron Wright. And it's always amazed me how fans react to a world title match. This one had one of the most unique challengers in the sport. Ron Wright is like nobody else. He had been a heel almost his entire career in Knoxville until I came there. He had been very accommodating to allow a young green booker and owner like me to change his entire persona. I knew it would be difficult for him to go out there with one of the greatest skilled wrestlers of all time and be a babyface. I knew that to begin with. There was no doubt about that. It definitely was not his style, but he never complained, ever. Jack Briscoe had been a babyface his entire career before becoming the world champion. He was one of the few babyface NWA champions in history. He worked with both babyfaces and heels as he crisscrossed the world. Luckily, he'd been working long enough with other babyfaces in title matches that he was prepared for any opponent except maybe Ron Wright. You know, uh, I sat with both Wright and Briscoe, and and we talked about the match. Uh, and uh, we agreed if things weren't going well, as they liked it or they they had wished it was going to go, that I gave Ron permission to open up and become a heel. Uh, I had a feeling that fans were going to love it. And seeing the old Ron Wright, they hadn't seen him in a long time. And they might even possibly cheer him, even, even though he was resorting to dirty tactics. And that's exactly what happened. Turns out that once he started healing, that crowd got behind him bigger than they were when they were just having a baby face match between him and Briscoe. When Wright was getting nowhere trying to wrestle his way to the world title, you know, it made sense for him to just change his tactics in midstream, becoming the old Ron Wright. Fans had won it. He made an interview the Friday before saying, I'm going to do this. If I can't beat him wrestling, I'm going to be the old Ron Wright again. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get that championship belt. It was like watching two completely different matches. Started out being a babyface match, ends up being a heel match, but the guy you're expecting to be the heel is the babyface. It was a crazy type of an event. Uh, in the end, Jack beat him with a wrestling move. His right was going for his chisel. Ron Wright had started healing. He got him down. He turned his back. He went for his chisel. Everybody in Knoxville knows what's going to happen next, except Jack just slipped in there, and he did the same thing that Wright did, which was amazing on television program the, the Saturday before. He slides in there, puts an abdominal stretch on Ron Wright, and then takes him down on the mat. Uh, Ron Wright won by the opponent giving up from the abdominal stretch. Briscoe did it wrestling style, took that abdominal stretch, took him back on his back, and uh, got his shoulders to the mat, and the ref counted him out. The crowd booed, uh, sad to see their favorite loose, you know, but before they both left the ring, Jack was smart champion. He went over and he raised Ron Wright's hand. And the crowd erupted. There was a standing ovation for both of them. I had never seen that in my wrestling career, a world championship match 
that had both wrestlers holding their hands in the air and the crowd giving them stand ovation. It gave me goosebumps, you know, and uh, if, if something does that to me, it's usually pretty darn good. That crowd was really into it. And uh, just from watching that and how they responded to what happened at the end of the match. I got to say, it was one of the best world title matches uh, I ever saw. Ron, I'm just curious. How did the crowd uh, do compared to the other two Coliseum shows? And what was the payoffs? Well, this one was about 4,300 fans. It was the biggest one yet for a little over $17,000 gross gate. Total payoff was just under $5,000. Had 18 total wrestlers and refs on it. Had two referees on it. I didn't take a payoff because Jack Briscoe and the NWA payoff out of this 5000 is going to be about around $1,500. So it was a good house. I'm going to make some money. I didn't want to take my money away from the boys. So it, my money, my payoff got spread around, basically. The bottom boys and the refs, the superstar, Bobby Fields, Buddy Wayne, Don Lambert, Big Butch Malone, Dennis Hall, and the two refs got 125 each. Next level, Robert, Austin, Siegler, Carson, Thatcher and Armstrong got about 250 each. Rock Hunter got 300 and Ron Wright got 500. It was a little light on the uh, starting guys, which I wasn't unhappy about that. But when you have a world champion on your card, especially the NWA world champion, you're going to have to pay about 10% for the champion and the fee that goes back to the NWA office. So it makes it difficult but when you have a world champion for your guys to get as big a payoff. But I tried my best by not taking a payoff to to inflate their money a little bit. So those guys that worked the other three shows that I talked about earlier in the show, uh, the bottom guys made about $350 each for the four shots. The top guys got about $600 each for just four matches. And uh, add up the total attendance for the four shows for the week. Southeastern set a new attendance record for a week with more than 8,000 fans in four nights. Not running six nights yet. That's the goal, is to get to that six nights and have a full territory. Uh, Also, we're 1975. We have not, I've been there 13 months. We are still trying to become a bona fide big-time business. And we're going to head there. We're going to get there. We're going to get a lot further in 1976. But it's it's not going to come quickly. It's a, it's something that uh, takes some time to build. And uh, I was happy with what we were doing and where we're at at this point. Uh, it's not bad at all for a new company in its first year. And wasn't even an entire week. It was just four shows instead of six. And uh, it was more like all, all territories. In the year 1975, that's pretty darn good money, $600 for a guy for wrestlers in four shots. I wasn't disappointed with that. Uh, and I don't think my wrestlers were disappointed with it either. I think they knew that my intention was to keep building this territory and to turn that $600 a week into $1,800 a week. And that's where we'll get uh, within the next couple of years. All right, Ron. Well, as we start to call for the go home, I'd like to remind everybody that uh, to become friends with the, the Tennessee Stud, simply go to his second Facebook page at Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, and like that page. You will automatically become friends with a legend. On Twitter, it's at Ron Fuller Welch. 
this is a part of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Uh, super podcast, facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. You can reach me on Twitter at Bowdrin Jeff. Don't forget the phenomenal Super Studcast number 23 with Dr. Tom Pritchard. Both parts are out now, and part two has a very unusual question and answer segment that is excellent. Uh, you can get, find it at TennesseeStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast for only $2.99 for over three hours of fantastic wrestling history. Ron, where are we heading next week? Well, we're going to look at the last Knoxville card before Christmas night in 1975. It's going to take place on November 28, 1975, where I'll also discuss some unique things I decided to do in the first three weeks of 1975 in December uh, that will be totally different than what other territories are doing. We'll talk about that next week. I think fans will be, uh, they'll be really interested to hear uh, what we did in the early part of the December uh, during the year of 1975. We'll take a deep dive into the November 1975 Arbitron and Nielsen ratings that were so critical for television stations around the country that had wrestling. Uh, RWBR TV is definitely going to be showing me those ratings, and I knew it in early part of December when they came out. And we're going to discover what was the first ever Christmas night card. Uh, and it's going to be in 1975 in that year. And we're moving back into Chilhowee Park for that Christmas night card. And uh, really looking forward to getting into 1976 and uh, bringing in some of the biggest stars that that part of the country had ever seen. Okay, Ron Fuller Studcast once again is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Special thanks to our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman. Ron, I appreciate you having me on with you for this journey, and the story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. What? This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.